you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to look at a verse there in just a moment as we begin our thoughts this evening, but it's good to see everyone out as usual. I have to say it's been a very good worship service thus far. I, I, it just feels like the, the singing, it's just been very lively tonight. And uh, also just want to second something that Adam was t- saying in the uh, announcements tonight, that we are starting back up those monthly men's and ladies studies and and try to make sure that you make time to be there because it's 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 a very good work that we're doing when we come together more often and when we try to learn more about God's word and especially when it's more focused in that kind of capacity in terms of application for uh, ladies and men alike so I, I just want to reemphasize that and and make sure that you're trying to participate in that there's all kinds of things that we can do to help the local congregation the work of the local congregation and this is a very good way to do that so Try to make time for that, and and, uh, I'm I'm sure it's going to be good studies as we continue that back up uh, throughout these next few months. Again, if you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, there's something that God says here, and and frankly, this is something we talked about in the morning lesson when we looked at James chapter 4, but in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, Peter says, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now there's a couple of times that that passage is quoted from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And the reason it is is because it's a lesson that never dies. And it's interesting because this is a moment where you're not just hearing God talk about or to his people. He's also talking about those who are his enemies or make themselves his enemies. God has a lot to say to his people, doesn't he? He has a lot to say that he wants Christians, that he wants his people of all time to listen to and hear. But did you also know that God has a good bit to say to his enemies? And frankly, there are some things that he says to his enemies that we need to learn and that we really need to focus in on because what it does is help us on our path, trying to focus on the path that Jesus walked. It helps us stay on that path and it helps us learn some very deep, eternal truths that God never wants anyone, anyone to forget but especially his people. Now, if you want to turn back in the Old Testament to Obadiah, this may be uh, the part of your Bible that the pages stick together a little bit more because it's one of the minor prophets. It's something that uh, you don't really come to that often. But in Obadiah, we come to a portion of Scripture that really uh, has to do with this, this, what we were just talking about, a lot that God has to say to his enemies. Because as you read in the first two verses here of Obadiah, in verse 1, it says, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning, not Israel, but Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. And so here is a prophecy. Here comes a prophet of God who is proclaiming a message it's a lot like Jonah it's interesting because it's not necessarily directed towards his people Israel it's directed towards in Jonah's case Nineveh and in Obadiah's case it's directed towards Edom and so when you look at this at first glance it almost looks like a foreign message but I want to ask the question is it really because while even when you look at the fact that it's not necessarily directly towards his people Israel although it is scripture that they would have held in high regard and that they were supposed to learn from but beyond that, many view this as, a, as foreign to really what they're, 
what you're used to in the Bible story. And when we come to a passage like this, we tend to think, I won't gain anything from this, or just very simply, I can't gain anything from this. And frankly, I think that that is the, the opposite conclusion we're supposed to come from. What if I told you that you might just have everything to gain from this portion of the Bible? What if I told you that God is subtly revealing grander themes in just this tiny little portion of Scripture in Obadiah? Like his scheme of redemption, his plan of salvation, his promise of justice ultimately against the evil one, his promise of justice against all of the wrongs that have been done, not only against him, but against his people, us. Isn't that a message that you want to hear? I'll tell you, that's a message that we can't stop hearing, that we need to hear over and over again because it's one of encouragement. It's one that builds our confidence and assurance in our faith. But really, I think before we can understand Obadiah's vision, Obadiah's prophecy, we have to get a bit of history set first. And, and so I want to look at some family history here. When you look at Edom, what, what is this country of Edom? What, who are the Edomites? In fact, it's a very interesting history because they go back all the way to Abraham and Sarah. In fact, Edom, Edomites, they are to a degree sons of Abraham. And when you think about that, you think, now sons of Abraham are receiving judgment? Maybe there's something to learn there as well. But Abraham is a name that we all know and love, and we even talked about this in the Bible class this morning. This is the one who received the covenant, the promises from God, that he would have a nation come from him, descend from him, that he would have the seed. Jesus the Christ come from his lineage, from his uh, descendants, rather. And so there's a lot that we that we look up to when it comes to Abraham. We try to emulate his faith. In Galatians chapters 3 and 4, Paul says that we are sons of Abraham, those who have been baptized into Christ, who have put on Christ in baptism. Why? Because you are emulating that same faith that Abraham had. So he's very important. Well, from Abraham, we have the son of promise, Isaac. You remember that story too, because here's Abraham and Sarah were getting older in age, and it was quite surprising that, they, that she could even get pregnant. But God promises, he gives them a promise that they will have a child. And this is the son of promise, Isaac, who in effect receives that covenant, that promise, that's going to continually be passed down generation to generation to generation of the sons of Abraham. And so through God's provision, he gives Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac. And he, from him, comes two uh, uh, very interesting individuals, Jacob and Esau. Now, when you get to Genesis chapter 25, this is where you meet these two brothers. In fact, they're twins. And there's a very important passage in Genesis chapter 25 that shows us from the beginning how God is going to use these two men and really in, in a very broad sense. From Isaac and Rebekah come Jacob and Esau in Genesis chapter 25 beginning in verse 22. It says, but the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, just from the outset, that seems backwards. Because it's the oldest that receives the blessing. It's the oldest that has the birthright within, within the family. In verse 24, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Now, again, these two characters are, are very 
interesting to say the least, but they're also integral to the Bible story because being the son of Isaac, the son of promise, God says that these two individuals are going to represent something, something greater that he's going to accomplish. And, and what you find in their lives from birth, in fact, there's, a, there's constant friction between the two. And you even see here in Genesis 25 that Jacob is holding on to Esau's heel as they're being born. And it's very indicative of what would come, both in their lives, but also in the future, those that would descend from them. Now, we know that story. I think most know this story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob lives up to his name. He, in, instead of, you know, being a, a really a good brother, what he does is, as they get older, Esau is a huntsman and he, or a, a man of the field, and he comes back one day and he's famished and tired. And what does Jacob do? Like a good brother, he just freely gives him the the stew that he was working on, so that way he can restrengthen himself. No, he's. As, as Esau is saying, I'm famished, give me something to eat. Jacob says, okay, absolutely, but give me your birthright first. And you know how the story goes. Esau despises his birthright. He gives it up just for a bowl of stew. And from there, it doesn't really get any better. Because a time passes, and from then, after that uh, interesting little uh, issue between them, you have uh, Jacob deceive his father further because he was essentially blind, Isaac was, at this time. And when the day came that Esau was supposed to receive the blessing from Abraham, from Isaac, as he's going out to uh, get some more game and, and prepare it to give to his father, Jacob comes in dressed as his brother, smelling like his brother, and all for the sole purpose of tricking his father into giving him the blessing as well. He's already stolen the birthright, but now Jacob comes in and takes the blessing, and he succeeds. Now, you can guess what happens next, even if you don't know the story. Esau is furious. And so he says, I'm going to kill Jacob. I'm going, to, I'm going to take his life for everything that he has done against me. And so Jacob has to leave his home. And for more than 14 years, they're separated. And during that time, you have both Jacob and Esau accumulating more uh, wealth, accumulating prosperity, accumulating families. And during all of that time, God blesses both individuals. Again, all of this, I think, is indicative of what would come from their descendants. But after those uh, more than 14 years, Jacob decides he's going to come back. And as he's coming back, he fears for his life, and, and he sends uh, waves of servants to Esau, wondering if he's going to receive them gently or send a message to Jacob. Is he still angry with me? But after all this time, what we find is, is at the end of their lives, they actually reconcile, and they get to peace which is a beautiful story in Genesis chapter 33. Unfortunately, how they ended their lives, these two individuals, was not going to be the way it went for their descendants. Because after this fact, what would come from Jacob and Esau, there's going to be constant strife. And when you look at the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Esau, it is from these two individuals come the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom. In fact, in Genesis 32, that's the moment where as Jacob is, str is struggling, wrestling with the angel, after the fact, God says, no longer is your name Jacob. No longer are you deceiver. Now you are Israel. Why? Because you have striven, striven with God. Now you're going to continue to strive with God. Esau, uh, from, from his descendants, would be the Edomites. In fact, his name is Edom because it, it means red, as, it, as we just uh, saw a moment ago, the name Esau meaning as well when he came out and, and, and was born. But all of this being said, here are the two individuals that both of these nations come from. 
As I already indicated, while the individuals would come to peace at the end of their lives, the nations that came from them would, would never come to peace or peaceful terms. Over in Numbers chapter 20, there are several incidents that we could look at, but in Numbers chapter 20, Numbers chapter 20, this is a very uh, a good representation of how their relationship goes once they become powerful nations themselves. In Numbers chapter 20, beginning in verse 14, it says, From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom, because they were wandering through the wilderness after the exodus. And he says, Thus your brother Israel has said, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt, and we stayed in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out from Egypt. Now behold, we are at, uh, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of the, your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through the field or through the vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or left, until we pass through your territory. Edom, however, said to him, You shall not pass through us, or I will come out with the sword against you. Again, the sons of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if I and my livestock, uh, and if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him and with heavy force and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Again, this is very representative of how the relationship would be between the two nations from here on out. And so here we have a very, uh, just a very brief explanation of where these nations came from. Edom is in fact sons of Abraham. And they should have viewed Israel as brethren. When you get to Obadiah's time and you see this prophecy that of judgment, of doom that he's giving to, to, to the, the nation of Edom, it's not for no reason. It's because at this point in history, Israel had been invaded, they had been plundered, they had been injured by their enemies. And frankly, because of the sin that they had, brought on, that they had chosen to follow after instead of God, but there had been enemies that came in and had really hurt the nation as a whole. During that time, Edom continued to antagonize them. Instead of saying, you are our brethren, we're going to help you. They added on to the hurt. Coming back to Obadiah, Obadiah in verse 10, Obadiah in verse 10. It says, because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster, and do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives, and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. So, so what had Edom done? They had harmed further what should have been their valued brethren. They should have looked at the Israelites as sons of Abraham. They should have looked at, looked at them as kinsmen, and instead of, instead of <laughs> looking at them with pity, they could have at least been neutral, but they didn't even do that. They added to the harm by engaging in the same level of violence. They gloated over God's people because of their arrogance, and they joined in the violence against them. They thought that they could get away with this because of their arrogance. In verse 3, it says, The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? 
In verse 4, though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. You see, Edom was a hill country, and that had a lot of strategic value, especially in warfare. And so what they thought was, we are higher than everyone else. And in fact, it, it almost seemed to affect their attitude. We are, we, are more, we are more highly regarded than you. We're better than all of you, you know. They kind of sat on their high horse because of where, just simply because of their location. And because of maybe some of that strategic value, they thought that they could get away with this. But instead of, instead of seeing the calamity that came on their brother, they just continue to hurt their brethren. And in so doing, they bring God's attention and judgment upon them as well. This is kind of like one of those moments where a parent is disciplining their child because they did something wrong. And then you hear the sibling all of a sudden say, yeah, get him, dad. And then all of a sudden his attention turns to that child and says, Oh, just wait for your turn. <laughs> and this is kind of that moment. Obadiah, this family feud has culminated to a point where God says, you've gone too far. Now my attention is on you and you will receive the judgment and it's not going to be pretty. They brought themselves to this point. That's what Obadiah is talking about here. Why was this coming upon them? Because of the, simply their association and participation in the harm that the other nations had done to Israel as they invaded and plundered them. And so, because of that association and participation, they branded themselves as fellow enemies of God, as is what is always the case. When we participate in those evil deeds, guess what? We join in the effort. We join in the cause. And what is the cause? To curse God and His people. And that never ends well for those individuals. Now, this is the story of Obadiah. This is where we're at between Edom and Israel by the time you get to the, the judgment here in the prophecy of Obadiah. What does any of this have to do with the whole of the Bible story? I'm glad you asked. That's what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the evening. And, and really what I want to focus on is how both nations are representative of greater lessons. And I've got to say, I've sat on this lesson for a while, and I'm very excited to share with you some of the things that I learned because I think it's pretty impressive what God has done with these two nations. Israel and Edom. First of all, what these two nations do is they are used by God to show us how he will deal both with his people and with his enemies. How he will care for his people even when they do encounter tribulation, even when they do encounter the persecution, and how he will ultimately bring judgment and justice against his enemies regardless of what the situation looks like. Maybe it looks like they're winning. They won't for long. And I think that this is one of the main lessons that we're to learn from this, this feud between Edom and Israel. When you go further, God's angry and just judgment against Edom, I think, is key here. In verse 15 of Obadiah, <clears throat> very quickly, as you're going through this, this proclamation of doom and gloom on Edom because of their sins, in verse 15 he says, For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. That's a statement of judgment if ever there was one, isn't there? Isn't it? What is he saying? It is going to be complete. I am going to completely annihilate you. But what's interesting about this is that he doesn't just speak to Edom. Who else does he bring into this? Not only does he point Edom out, but he also points out the nations. And that's important. 
Because what we find is, and this is one of the things that I thought was so interesting, the word Edom, the names Edom and Adam are very similar. In fact, in Hebrew, they're just a letter off. And what I think that suggests is, I think what is happening here is a little bit of wordplay. And so what is God trying to get across here? Edom, which is basically the same name as Adam. And what does Adam mean but man, mankind? And Adam is used as a representative of mankind <coughs> several times throughout the Bible. You think especially Romans chapter 5 and the comparisons that, the, that Paul makes between Adam and Christ. And so over and over again, Adam is used and how to represent mankind. Now, why is that important? Because it's not just Edom that will be destroyed, not just one nation, but all of mankind that has made themselves, that has branded themselves as God's enemies by being hostile towards his people and therefore being hostile to him. What's the point? This promise of judgment on Edom becomes a terrifying reality for all of God's enemies, not just one nation, but everyone who goes against him. Now, on the other hand, you have Israel, which very clearly, instead of being <coughs> pointed to as just Israel, which is, is their designation, he brings in this other name, Zion. In verse 17, But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Now I would just say, just keep... Try to uh, keep this in your mind because we're going to come back to this when we make the main application, not just overall in the story of the Bible, but the application that we have to make for ourselves. But continuing on in verse 18, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead, and the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in uh, Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will send Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now let me just say, what tends to happen as you read through different prophets, <clears throat> there's going to be language that you don't understand. You're not going to understand absolutely every single bit of it, especially the first time you're going through this. But let me just say, you don't have to understand absolutely everything to know what God is saying. And on the first hand, in verses 15 through 16, he says, judgment, complete judgment is coming against my enemies. And in verses 17 through 21, what do you have but a messianic prophecy? This message of the Christ that's going to come. That the kingdom will be the Lord's. And that kingdom will be a, a, one of safety and refuge. Now, all of that being said, that this will be the one that receives the victory. <clears throat> Zion is represented by this, this nation, Israel. What is supposed to become a spiritual Israel that we are supposed to join ourselves now, I think this is still a prophecy against Edom. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's no physical fulfillment here. There was, and Edom was destroyed. But now we're getting into those greater themes of the Messiah that's coming, of this messianic kingdom. And, and again, stay with me on this, because the same language is used in Amos, Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. And that's just a page before Obadiah, Amos chapter 9. <clears throat> in verse 11, 
It says, in that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Now, the reason this is important is because what you have here is Amos, another prophet, bringing in Edom and the judgment that came upon them and how God is going to use this nation in his plan. It's not just left there. You go all the way over into Acts. Acts chapter 15. This is why this is important language here. Acts chapter 15 in verse 15. This is during that moment when there came a point of some contention because in the church there were Gentiles that were being added in. They were becoming Christians. And there were some issues between some of the Jews saying, well, well how do we deal with this because these are Gentiles? Peter has to stand up and talk, give, an, give an account of what God has done, remind them of what God has done for them and, and specifically for the Gentiles that even they're being added into the church. But in verse 15, James says, With this the words of the prophets agree, just as, as it is written, after these things, quoting Amos, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of Edom may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes the things from long ago. Now, in the New American Translation it, it supplies the word mankind because again, as we already mentioned, that's what Edom means. That's what Adam means. It's representative of mankind. It's representative of all humans. Now, the reason that I even bring this up is because when James is using this, he's pulling this quotation, this prophecy from Amos, who's using this language from Edom, when, when Obadiah said, Edom's going to be completely destroyed. And what does the New Testament say? There's going to be survivors. There are going to be some that escape. And how are they going to escape? They're going to have to come to this nation. They're going to have to find refuge only at Mount Zion. They're going to have to leave their mount and come to God's, which is higher and more powerful. Now, this brings us to the main application. Again, stay with me here because I don't think that this has nothing to do with you. This has everything to do with you. You want to know why? Because first of all, when you look at the judgment that God says is coming against Edom, against man, you can be sure that God is still going to bring judgment to the nations of this world that have made themselves enemies, that have been hostile against his kingdom, against his people. What are we supposed to take from that? I think very clearly, are you a part of those nations? Are you one of the ones that are going to be completely annihilated? Just like Edom was completely destroyed, what do you think will happen to the nations? to mankind that has been hostile against God and his people. You know, if I am not yet a Christian, a part of Zion, which is what we're citizens of, we even sing some hymns like that, marching on to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. If I am not yet a part of that holy nation, that holy city, I am destined for annihilation. Now, someone may look at a passage like this and say, but I, I came to services with my family all my life. My closest friends are Christians. My closest relatives are Christians. They are a part of that nation, Zion. You know what the Edomites could have said? We're brethren. We are fellow sons of Abraham. They were, literally. But God says that that's not enough. That association with good people, that association with his nation, with his people, will not be enough. 
You have to become a part of it. They could say, but listen, Abraham received the promise, so shouldn't we receive the promise? You have got to follow those conditions that he gave even to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and all of the generations after. But they didn't do that. Instead of being, instead of being those brethren, they just added on to the strife. And I think what we're supposed to take from this, one of the things that we are supposed to take from this is that you can be closer to God's people than the rest of the nations. You can be closer to Christians. You can be closer to the citizens of Zion than anybody else that you know. But you're still a part of the nations of Edom, mankind that has made themselves enemies of God. And why is that? Because you have not yet converted to Christ. You have not yet done the things that he says he requires of his citizens. And you know what's going to happen? The judgment. That's the only conclusion. So what does Obadiah teach Christians? That judgment is coming. And you will not escape unless you come to this nation. Now, how are we supposed to come to this nation? Well, I think you have to humble yourself to come to God's refuge. And, you, and again, just keeping with the language that we read in verses 17 through 21, that messianic language uh, in Obadiah... Think about what Edom had done. They were gloating over Israel. They had been making fun of Israel. Now that the, this, you know, often Israel was actually reigning over Edom and they had the power over Edom. And now that Israel was receiving some judgment, they're thinking in terms of look at them getting their comeuppets. They are, look at you all high and mighty and look how the mighty have fallen. And they had been making fun of them the whole time while they were in their distress, while they were receiving this, this terrible fate. Now, all that being said, they would, the only way that they would be saved is that they would have to go tail between their legs to that same group of people that they were making fun of the entire time and say, you were right. You were right all along. And you know what that means they're going to have to do? They're going to have to let go of that pride that we read about in verses 3 and 4 and verses 10 through 14. They had so much arrogance. And you know what? To be a part of this nation, you're going to have to let that arrogance go. You know what I think of when I look at the Edomites in that part of, of their history? I just think about exactly how the world treats the church today. The world frequently makes fun of God. The world makes fun of his people. The world makes fun of his word consistently. But if they want to be saved, they're going to have to come and say, the very thing that I railed against this whole time is the very thing that saved me is the very thing that I had to submit myself to. What are they doing? They're going to have to leave that arrogance behind and in humili be humiliated by the confession. Again, this was the right the whole time. God's message was what was going to save me. So you have a man who calls Christians fools because they look at the cross and he just sees us as a broken, bloody mess and they see it as their power of salvation. They see it as grace. But when he comes to his senses... And he believes the gospel. What he's going to have to confess is, <laughs> what I said was folly was the only wisdom that could possibly save me from the death that was coming. The man who rails at the cross as weakness, he's going to have to come and confess, this was the only power, the only strength that could deliver me. The man or woman who persecuted the church is going to have to, like Paul say, this body that I injured is the very one that I had to become a part of. The very one that I now have to cherish and take care of. Again, what does that take? It takes humility. 
There is so much that we need to learn about pride and how God says it needs to all be let go. It needs to all be put away if you want to join my people and become my people and have that refuge and safety and security. Well, finally, you have this language of fire and how they will be, the house of Joseph will be a flame of fire and it will consume the house of Esau. The house of Esau had to be reduced to rubble to stubble rather it had to be consumed by fire and what was left well that's what was going to be given that security and salvation what does that mean for us in a very in a very similar way you must allow God to consume you you have to allow God's fire to consume you the things that are dedicated to the destruction, the things that are dedicated to sinfulness, the things that are dedicated to hostility against God, the things that are dedicated to, to Satan and the temptations that he hurls at us. You have to let all of that be completely burned away. And so that way, what comes out on the other side, it, like the refiner's fire, is purified. And what is left is no longer the house of Esau, but a citizen of Zion. We are going to have to be consumed in a very similar way. And, you know, sometimes we look at that and say, you know, this is something that is representative of destruction, fire. And it is. There's a hymn that I, that I absolutely love. We haven't sung it here. But I love the lyrics of this hymn. As it ta it's, it's called, O Church of Arise. And as it's going through some of what we talked about this morning, the armor of God and how we are supposed to arise and do the work of God, it talks about the captive souls. And how, do, how are we supposed to go to these captive souls that are wounded? We have to bring the sword that makes the wounded whole. You don't generally look at a sword and say, this is going to heal you. And yet God says, you need to be struck down by the sword. So that way you can be saved by it. And in a very similar way, what we have to do is allow God to consume the parts of us, consume the old man so that way it is no longer even remotely a part of our lives. It's completely reduced to ash and blown away in the wind. And you think about what could have been consumed for the Edomites, for them to escape that judgment. It's going to have to be something like that pride. What might have to be consumed in you when you become a Christian? It may have to be the lust that you just have not been able to shake. It may be the bitterness that you've been holding on to for so long. Are you willing for that fire to burn that away? The hatred maybe that you feel. Maybe, maybe just this, this silly notion that what you read in the scriptures is, is completely bogus and absurd and folly. Maybe that needs to be burned away. There are so many applications that could be made, but I just want to ask, are you a part of that nation that is going to receive the judgment? If you are, are you willing to humble yourself at the cross so that way you can be saved from that destruction and have the salvation that only comes to the citizens of Zion? You're going to have to let God completely burn away all of the things that have led you to that point of death in the first place. If you're willing to do that, you can be a part of that nation that's going to receive the salvation. This is not a foreign message. It is the gospel message. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Or pride goeth before destruction. Pride goeth before the fall. Rest assured, just like you see with the Edomites in the judgment that Obadiah brings against them from the Lord, what happened to them? They were completely destroyed. Gone. 
History can't even find them. That's the kind of judgment that God is bringing and, and so much worse in hell. You don't want to be a part of that side. What you want to be is in the refuge and beautiful safety and love of his nation. Are you willing to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord so that way he will lift you up? You're going to have to carry your own cross, deny yourself, and become a disciple of his, follow after him. Are you willing to believe everything that God has said? Are you willing to repent, let, let him consume all of those sins away? Leave them behind you. Leave that old man in the dust and ashes. Make a confession based on that belief and be baptized into his newness of life so that you can declare, I am now a citizen of Zion. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.